You're listening to Wiretap with Jonathan Goldstein on CBC Radio 1 and Sirius Satellite Radio 159. Today's episode, Alana. Monday, 6.30 p.m. My office at the CBC. I barely slept all weekend, and I can't seem to focus my mind long enough to write this week's monologue. This feeling of writer's block, of being adrift, isn't just a function of lack of sleep exactly. It's due to the rough business of dreaming when I do. In dreams, I wander dilapidated hotels, stumbling upon hidden rooms full of dead relatives. Why haven't you phoned, their eyes seem to say. The sensation of guilt is overwhelming. And yet, unusual ideas often do arrive in the half-asleep state, drifting in when you stop trying to will them. And so, hoping for inspiration, I allow myself to drift off at my computer. But not a moment later, something jolts me awake, more awake than I have been in days. Alana Kennedy, who, unless I am dreaming, has just walked out of the past and into my office. Remember me, she says from the doorway. I in fact remember her so well that my first instinct is to pretend I don't remember her at all. It's embarrassing how much I remember her. It's been over 25 years. Mrs. Chen, I ask, the cafeteria lunch lady? Forgive me if I didn't recognize you without your hairnet. It's Alana, she says, stomping her foot. Her arms are now crossed. She's laughing. She knows when I'm being funny. Not everyone does. You still make me laugh, she says, shaking her head. I'd spent the entirety of 12th grade making Alana laugh, mooning over her. Just an open wound, I had no game back then. The only trick I knew was how to bleed, all over everything. Let me carry you to class, I'd say, running up behind her in the hallway. Or, let's skip school and make a road trip. Everything I said, no matter how true and sincere, never came out right. Always felt like a joke. Her laugh was a loud, open thing, something you'd hear from a large woman at a barn dance. So strange to see it coming from her tiny face. I loved her laugh, and good for me, because it was all I could get. Maybe, I'd thought in moments of bitterness, she'd allow me to stand outside her bedroom door and crack jokes while she made love to a worthier man on the other side. You're nothing but her clown, our classmate Sidney would say. Sidney was a handsome boy, with bangs hanging down like floppy puppy dog ears mean and appealing, sitting beside Alana and me in art class, spending his time asking the teacher, why don't we get to work with nude models? So what if I'm her clown, I'd say. I was grateful to be her anything. I ask Alana what she's doing in town, and she tells me she's in Montreal for work. An art curator now, she places sculptures and paintings in corporate spaces. The CBC brought her in from Toronto to spruce up the place. She likes wandering around a building she's working on after hours without people around, 
to get a sense of its spirit. I didn't know this building had a spirit, I say. Everything has a spirit, she says. She is just as I remember her, and my heart pounds in my throat and in my ears. It seems not much has changed since the 12th grade, the year she'd completely scrambled my brains. The way she smelled, her red hair, the small cleft in her chin that her mother said she could have removed after high school. I won't let you, I'd say. It's what makes you Alana. It seems odd to say, but growing up, Alana was one of the few people who made me feel genuinely liked, but that she could not love me broke my heart, ruined what is said to be one's best years. I offer Alana a seat and reach for the bottle of scotch that I keep in my desk drawer for when mysterious and beautiful strangers from the past show up, or for when I feel like getting drunk. She accepts a shot poured into my coffee mug while I drink straight from the bottle, wiping my mouth with a handful of expense forms on my desk. Alana gives me her life in bullet points. She is suddenly like someone on a reality TV show, oddly formal and performy. But to me, it's also sweet, a bit like a kid pretending to be an adult. Maybe when you've known someone when you were kids, everything adult-like about them strikes you as a cute put-on. I can't focus very well on what she's saying, distracted as I am by her hair, lips, her very presence in my life. But here's what I retain. Married at 32, moved to Edmonton for her husband's work, separated from him last year, and is raising two boys, eight and 10. One goes to a school for the gifted, the youngest, though possibly the oldest. The boys listen to your show, she says. I tell them how I knew you when you were just a boy, how you were so funny. At the taxi stand outside the CBC, we make plans to meet for dinner the next night. She hugs me, and her embrace is so tight that for a moment I'm scared she might try to pick me up. As her cab drives off, a feeling of panic overtakes me. At what, I'm not sure. Losing her again, perhaps. I stick my hands into my front pockets, fish around for my house keys, hold them in my fist, trying to root myself to the earth. a.m. I've been lying in bed for two hours, but sleep does not come. It's an alluring thought to think that all of my failings in life, every last one, from never finishing that film script to never taking those Szechuan cooking classes, are due to never winning Alana. To hang all my failures on that hook. Why, of course you're off track. You failed to make her love you. That was all you were put on earth to do. As a kid, I believed that if I concentrated hard enough, my love for her would have the effect of a prayer, a real one, the kind from the Bible that Moses spoke on a mountaintop, tearing his toga wide open and watching the clouds scatter like rats. If only I prayed hard enough, God would deliver her to me. How I thought and thought of her in my childhood bed, sleepless as I am now, listening to Elton John on the clock radio, Imagining a slow dance with her. Imagining singing to her at our wedding, seated behind a piano. But instead of taking piano lessons, I did nothing. I swim in a bucket of memories. 
The night we went out to my favorite donut shop and watched a waitress tell a man his shirt was ugly. What's wrong with this world? Alana cried out with unexpected joy. In a booth by the window, she had told me, a virgin, about the first time she'd ever had sex. Slow, she told the boy in the middle of it all. But he, thinking she'd said, so? began singing out her praises in a train of exultant adjectives. Glorious, wonderful, sensational. How I listened, hunched, as though wrapped, though really doubled over from the emotional roundhouse kick to the groin. I remember how my mother, like any Jewish mother worth her salt, was skeptical of this Irish girl who held her son entranced. Der Reute, she'd spit, Yiddish for the redhead. And then there was Alana's own mother, a single mom with a thing for ponchos who Alana called by her first name, Linda. Blousy, pom-poms dangling everywhere, a can of beer on the kitchen table, pondering crossword puzzles. Their place, a mess, smelling not like Alana at all, but grilled cheese, burning butter, and ashtrays. Whenever I was over, Linda would constantly call her into the kitchen. Alana, what time is it? Alana, where's the pizza cutter? What happened to my good napkins? Alana would whisper back to her so I couldn't hear from the other room. Well, isn't that too damn bad, her mother would often say, as though it were her catchphrase. Well, isn't that too damn bad was what she'd said when Alana asked if she could have money to make the art class trip to New York City. Alana had never been, but was desperate to go. So I took what I'd made working at my cousin's pet store the summer before and split it down the middle, for both of us. This is what money's for, I said, when she objected. In New York, we went to galleries and architectural tours. At the Met, I tried talking about art, tried to say smart things, but instead, I ignored all the Picassos, Manets, Monets, and Gauguins, keeping my eyes only on her. We shared a hotel room that first night, and at one point, asleep, Alana had thrown her leg over my hip. Seen from the ceiling fan, we might have looked like that Annie Leibowitz photo of John and Yoko, where she's dressed and he's naked, and his vulnerability is crushing. His surrender to love is complete, brave and insane. Though Alana was probably surrendering less to love than simply to sleep, forgetting herself, and curling up as though I was her stuffed teddy bear back home. But there was her leg and her groin pressed into my side, her head on my chest, red hair spilling everywhere, and I remember thinking, and thinking with great force, like I was chiseling it into granite. You are happy now. No matter what's to come, whatever pain, heartbreak, and depression, you need to remember this moment, that this is happiness, and you are capable of it. I wouldn't allow myself to sleep the whole night. I wanted to suck up every second of her, breathing the air from her nose, watching over her. Instead of seeing my inability to just reach over and kiss her for what it was, a paralyzing fear of rejection, I chose to see it as one of those tests that men from the Bible must endure, tests involving angels and being chosen by God. 
In the morning, as light flooded our room, our friends swarmed in, jumping on the bed. You and Bozo the Clown sleep okay? Sidney asked, and how Alana laughed. They knew me, knew nothing could have happened. At breakfast in the hotel lobby, I wanted to tell her how happy she'd made me, but I couldn't find the words. How do you tell someone at 17 that you never could have dreamed such happiness was possible, that you were so happy you were ready to die, that you'd probably do best, in fact, to walk straight over to a funeral parlor, take a seat in their waiting room, and just wait out your days, done with the world, with the experience that would only obscure and corrupt the memory of sleeping beside Alana, you'd sleep in a coffin at night, wearing the suit you were bar mitzvahed in, ready to go. A few months later, at a graduation party, both of us drunk, we reminisced about New York. Alana asked if I remembered a taxi ride we'd taken one night. She said that in the backseat of the cab, I'd done one of the sweetest things she'd ever seen. When I asked her what it was, her eyes teared up. I'll tell you someday, she said, when we meet again. But she never did. For years after that, when I'd catch myself doing or saying anything remotely sweet, I'd wonder if this was what she was talking about. Was it how I stared out a cab window soulfully? showed stoic indifference to a cabbie who looked disapprovingly at a meager tip. Alana, I'd think, the greatest moment of my life is your own private secret. Because shortly after graduation, things fell apart. One night, drunk at my friend Norman's, I ran out of his house, hot with demons. I knew if I went to bed, I would lose the flame. I was inspired and nearly mad, the universe was on my side, and nothing could halt a young man pursuing the truth of his heart. Go, go, Norman called as I jumped off his stoop and tore through the streets to Alana's house. It was winter, and in her backyard I was up to my waist in snow, tossing snowballs at her bedroom window. She came down and let me in the back door where I poured it all out, no laughter, just tears. Sydney, Sydney, she kept saying, we're together, Sydney and I. You and Sydney, I was asking, but not quite I, a voice dribbling out of some new dislocated part of myself, creepy to me, alien sounding. I was a disposable appendage, not hers, but the universe's, I was nothing. I ran from the house, crying her name on curbs and bus benches all the way home. I was like a little kid. I was naked, skinless, turning the snow red. The alarm clock goes off. Still sleepless, I get up and get ready for work. Is everyone like this, I wonder? Do we all just pretend that the past has passed? that it does not rise with us in the morning and crawl back into bed with us at night. It's a small mercy we've been allowed to forget the womb. Otherwise, we'd go mad pining for it. Tuesday, 8 p.m. Alana and I meet for dinner. 
a Russian place where a man in his 60s sits on a stool and sings Johnny Cash songs in a Russian accent. He isn't bad, and Alana is taken with him, watching him rapt as we wait to be seated. At our table, we talk about her work, about mine, but after a couple glasses of beer, we loosen up. Why did you and your husband split, I ask? He was depressive, she says. Maybe I'm drawn to that, because of my mother. You know, I've always had a certain melancholic tendency, I say, while batting my eyelashes. Alana smiles. He was good to me, she continues, but I didn't like how he was in the world, to others. Have you seen the way I am with the world? The way I've been interacting with the waitstaff tonight, I ask? And wait until you see the tip I leave. I'm doing it again, I think, playing the fool. Some people go through life like their eyeballs are on the soles of their feet, I say somberly. It hurts, seeing, walking. I'm an eternal optimist, she says. Why, I ask. I just am, she says. I don't get it, I say. Life is too short to really do anything. It's all over before you know it. That's why we have to rush, she says, her reality TV voice returning. It inspires me. We pick at our food in silence. Do you remember New York, she asks, the day at the museum? Yes, I say. Funny that you work in art now. Do you remember how you put your tongue up so close to the ass on Degas' woman bathing in a shallow tub? She continues. I thought a security guard would throw us out. I was trying to make you laugh, I say. Why did you care so much about that, she asks, about making me laugh? I don't know what to tell her, that maybe it's why I went into radio in the first place, to talk to her, make her laugh, in her laundry room, picking up takeout in her car. Instead, I shrug, and we continue eating in silence. Suddenly, Alana says, that night in New York, why didn't you try anything? I guess I'd counted myself out of the running, I say. But then I take her hand and she accepts it. I guess I thought we'd just end up together somehow, I continue. I was young and stupid. I thought seduction was just a matter of making yourself into a doormat and hoping for the best. Who knows? Maybe it is. Anyway, when I use red font, I can't help but think of you. My hair is going gray, she says. Another silence, and then I ask it. Do you remember telling me there was something I'd done in New York that was very sweet? You always said you'd tell me someday, but you never did. Do you even remember? Alana clasps her hands, clears her throat, we were getting into a cab. There was this brown liquid all over the back seat. You said some rats had probably just gotten out of Times Square. And then you unbuttoned your shirt and you spread it out on the seat for me to sit on, like it was a picnic or something. I remember you hunched over in your little boy Fruit of the Looms undershirt. You were shivering. Wasn't I a little putz back then, I ask. You were sweet, she says an old man in a brown fedora waiting to sprout. After dinner, we walk through the street, 
my arm around her shoulder, not joking, in silence mostly. And to all the world, we looked like a man and his wife, content after a large meal, out for a stroll, at peace with the world. Five a.m. Back home, alone in my bed, I do not sleep for more than fifteen minutes. In this time, I dream I'm interviewing the president of the United States for my radio show. He is funny and warm, telling great personal stories about first loves and his fear of tripping on his way to the dais. It is only after much conversation that I realize, with horror. That we are in fact not in a studio at all. In fact, I'm lying on a hill, talking to him on my cell phone while staring at the clouds. Nothing was being recorded. One of the great moments in radio, I think, and only for me. I must cherish it. But of course, I know that radio unrecorded is not radio at all. It is life, and of course, life must be cherished. Or at the very least, lived. I wake to a morning in which the pigeons are already cooing her name, but the pain I awake to is mine. The question is what to do with it. Maybe we're handed our marching orders in heaven, and this is what I was born for—to lose her, over and over. 2,500 years ago, the Greek philosopher Heraclitus said, "Ethos anthropos daemon, character is fate." Or, as I saw it put more recently on a martial arts message board, "If you think you're a loser, then you are a loser." Maybe one day they'll find the loser thread in the brain and snip it, and there will no longer be losers in the world. Men who fear rejection. Men who favor a hot bath over the world, men who retreat into their own minds and then feel betrayed when they learn it's no safe haven, that neither is booze and friends can't be, and nothing is. What will this brave new world of only winners look like? Wednesday, 8 a.m., my office. I sit down once again to write my monologue. It is about a beautiful world overflowing with love, a world where you can pay for your groceries with your kisses. But mostly, rather than write, I stare at the white wall in the hallway outside my office door. In a month's time, a painting will hang there. I will learn that the painting is titled "The Laughing Monk." In it, a man is laughing because he is either a fool. Or because he is enlightened, he is laughing because he has just remembered something funny, or because he has just forgotten something sad. Every so often, I will pause what I'm doing, look up from my computer, and try to figure him out. Wiretap is produced by Jonathan Goldstein, Mira Bergmantonic, and Crystal Duhame. Tune into Wiretap Saturdays at 3:30 and Thursday evenings at 11:30. You can also hear Wiretap across North America on Sirius Satellite Radio 159.
or subscribe to the free podcast at cbc.ca slash wiretap, where you can also download the latest wiretap ringtone. Glorious, wonderful, sensational. Express your delight about receiving a phone call, an actual phone call, with every ring of your phone. That's a that's a slow clap you're getting right now from me. I'm, I'm getting a slow clap. Well, that it's this will be the last time you're ever doing the credits. It, it is very sad. You're going off to uh, a bigger, brighter pastures. Credits in the big leagues. That's very nicely put. I appreciate that. Wiretap fans know you as Bernice Meadows, but your real name is Carolyn Warren, and you've been the credit lady for the show for nine years. Yeah. I mean, you haven't just been the credit lady. You've also been the executive producer of Wiretap. And your personal coach. There is that. I think of myself as bubble wrap around Jonathan Goldstein. Protecting me from? Life. And we're all going to miss you. I'm going to miss you, too. But we wish you well. Well, thank you. And actually, before you go, could could I just get you to actually retake the last line just after the ringtone? Seriously. Just, yeah, just give it one more take. I'm leaving tomorrow morning. I haven't even started packing right. my office. Right, I know. Office. Well, this is... And this I've, is... I've been doing this for nine years. And, and I'm very conscious of your legacy, which is why I want you to give me just one final great take. Okay, fine, Jonathan. Express your delight about receiving a phone call, an actual phone call, with every ring of your phone. Just try the, uh, the an actual phone call, you know, like who gets phone calls anymore these days. An actual phone call. An actual phone call. An actual phone call. That's pretty good. Just try one more time. You do that better than I do. But all kidding aside, folks, we really are going to miss our Carolyn. To see a video of us tackling the impossible task of finding a new credit lady, visit cbc.ca slash wiretap. And Carolyn, best of luck to you on your new adventure.